I don't know if you thought about it or not when you woke up this morning, but there's a very uncomfortable reality that all of us find ourselves in this morning. We are at war. Individually, corporately, we're at war. We're in the middle of a spiritual war, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers in dark places. And, and, and the, the, this is true and has been true since Genesis chapter 3. And to think about the fact that we are in a war and a spiritual war is something that is... It is, it, it, there's, there's a tension that I want you to grasp and catch this morning. That on the one hand, this is an extremely uncomfortable truth. We don't like war. War is the reality of death and sin. Uh, it, it, it just speaks to the, the eternal conflict that is, is going on. Um, it speaks to the reality of Satan and death and sin. And on the one hand, we hate everything to do with war. Yet the tension on the other side is that I think all of us have been inspired by stories of war. There is something about war that uh, it just it pulls at our heartstrings, especially the stories of the underdogs winning, right? And, and, and all throughout history, there have been many stories, fact and fiction both, uh, where we, we, we enjoy hearing about the army of misfits, the underdogs, the untrained, the one who, who against all odds finds a way to come together under the commander of a general or a captain and receive the training, receive the inspiration, and all, lo and behold, at the end of the day, the unthinkable happens, that the underdogs win the war. And that, that, this, this tension between on the awfulness of one hand and yet the reality of seeing God do amazing things and even being able to see some of it through history of the way things have worked themselves out, this tension is recorded even in Scripture as over and over you go through Scripture and there's the, there's the underdogs, there's the misfits, there's those who have no business being at war and you see God use them to accomplish incredible things. David fighting Goliath. How does that happen? How does David come out victorious on that side? Gideon with his army of 300 men taking on 135,000 of the Midianites and how does, how does that work out? that those 300 guys God uses. How does it work out that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and he gathers around him a band of 12 men to be his disciples, to be his followers? Fishermen, some of them, on opposite ends of the political spectrum, some who would betray him, some who uh, showed their pride and ignorance and untrainedness continually. And, and this group of 12 men, one of which would depart from the scene, so now we're stuck with 11 after Christ's death. They were so fearful that they're locked away in a room. The leader of the 12 men, Jesus himself, was killed spent three days and three nights in the tomb. And then you, you watch the underdog of all underdog stories, 
God raise him again to new life, even as we just sung about. How does this happen? And what is it that God is at work and doing as we think through these stories? And for us individually and for us as a church, as we think about the reality of this spiritual war, I want us to think of ourselves this morning as a people at war. And as we are thinking about the word pictures of the truth, we as Christians, as a church put together, are a battalion, a company of spiritual fighters. I recognize, granted, I'm stretching just a little bit on word pictures of the church. You won't see battalion in scripture in relation to the church. You'll find it in other places that talk about Roman soldiers. But what you will see in scripture is the idea of, of us being soldiers, of us, being, uh, uh, of us as a group of people fighting in a spiritual war. And so that's the reality of where this message is going. The, the, the title and the inspiration, some of the material for the outline of this message isn't original with me, but a friend helped me come up with it. And I, I, so I, you'll hear some of that material coming out this morning. And yet, I want us to think of ourselves, though the church is not a battalion in an official sense, the church is a company of soldiers with Jesus Christ as the commander, and we have a work and a mission, and we are engaged in a very real spiritual war. And I want us to think through some of that this morning. You'll stay, keep your finger there in Ephesians, and I've got a bunch of other scriptures that we're going to go to as we think about this, and we're going to think about, well, who is our enemy? Who is our commander? What are the resources available? to us in this task and what is the outcome of this war that we are in as a church. And I want us to think through these things. And as we do, here's the one thing that I want you to walk away with. The battle is great, but our commander is greater. The battle is great, but our commander is greater. And we will see that just as we are inspired by stories of misfits, untrained underdogs seeing victory in a war, we will see God's plan for His church, His capital C church, and see what it is that God is doing, that though we are in a great battle, our commander is greater. And so I want us to think through this together. First, we're going to think about our enemy. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6 and you start there in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Look at verse 11 and 12. Notice the words that are used in these two verses to describe our enemy and who he is and the strength that he has and the strategies that he has. Paul says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Do you see what Paul is saying? Listen, you, you need to put on armor because you, you're fighting against the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces. Of evil. Do you catch what Paul is saying? Listen, there's a war going on. Pay attention to it. You're fighting this spiritual battle and this spiritual reality. Brothers and sisters, this is true, as I said, all the way back to Genesis 3. And you think about the narrative and the story there that God creates everything perfect in the world. He creates paradise and all of creation is perfect. And at some point, Satan, one of his created beings, 
through pride, wants to rise to the place of God. And through that fall, he enters sin and takes with him a whole host of angels. And now he has his own demonic spiritual forces. And you see this, this cosmic celestial battle going on from Genesis 3 up until today. And it's going to continue. And you recognize and realize that God is fighting for truth. Right, right away in Genesis 3, after the fall, he makes this promise that one day the serpent, Satan himself, would be crushed. That though he has struck this blow now, someday there would be a fatal blow to him. And you see some of this played out as the story goes. And you see the battle between good and evil. You see the battle between Satan and his forces as he tries to turn the hearts of God's people. And you see him have successes and victories along the way. And then you see Jesus himself show up on the scene. The promised one. The one who was going to fight for the, light, the kingdom of truth and light. The one who was going to deliver a fatal blow to the kingdom of darkness. And so throughout Scripture, you see this tension back and forth between the two kingdoms, the two realities. And one commentator says it this way, between the two kingdoms, there could be no compromise or appeasement. The power of God's kingdom forced man to a radical and final choice between the two armies and their two commanders. You see that? You realize that throughout history and even today, there is a battle between two kingdoms, two commanders of those armies, and it is a real battle. And you've got this quote in your bulletin by a man named Paul Minier, and he says this, throughout the New Testament, the kingdom of God was understood in its antithesis to its enemy, the kingdom of Satan. The two kingdoms embraced the only two possibilities confronting men. The beginning of the new kingdom was traced to the victory by Christ over Satan. This victory was accessible to all who would enlist in the same battle and use the same weapons. The community, therefore, thought of itself as a company of soldiers, fighters against Satan. This, this is what Paul is talking about when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And he says, you need to put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil his power, his authority, his rule, and just to realize the strategy that he has, that, that he is scheming, he knows our weaknesses, he is working to attack, and he has great strength and great power. A friend said it this way, a good soldier knows about the strategy and strength of the enemy and is therefore prepared for his assaults. So as we think about the war that we're in, we ought to think about our enemy. And how should we think about Satan? Well, I think there's two dangers that we want to avoid in thinking about Satan. One, we don't want to underestimate him and his strength or his strategy. On the other hand, we don't want to overestimate See, if we underestimate or overestimate, it's going to lead us into a danger. A man named R.C. Sproul has written on this topic in several places, and he says this. There are two frequent ways that Satan deceives us. On the one hand, he will seek to have us underestimate his strength. On the other hand, there are times that he seeks to have us overestimate his strength. In either event, he deceives us and can trip us up. The pendulum of popular belief about Satan tends to swing between two extremes. On one side, there are those who believe that, if he, do that he doesn't exist at all, or if he does exist, he is a mere impersonal evil 
force, sort of a collective evil that finds its origin in the sin of society. On the other side, there are those who have a preoccupied fixation, a cultic focus of attention upon him that diverts their gaze from Christ. Either way, Satan gains some ground. If he can persuade people that he does not exist, he can work his wiles without being detected or resisted. If he can get people to become preoccupied with him, he can lure them into the occult. To underestimate Satan is to suffer from the pride that goes before destruction. To overestimate him is to grant him more honor and respect than he deserves. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to do either. On the one hand, we don't want to underestimate the enemy and the reality of the evil and the reality of the war that he represents. And on the other hand, we don't want to overestimate him and give him more respect than he deserves. And we'll see both of these in Scripture. I have a few verses for you. And so first in 1 John 5, 19, we don't... Um, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't underestimate him. The whole world lies in his power in this present sense right now as he's the prince of this world, and so we don't want to underestimate him. On the other hand, we don't want to overestimate him. Look at 1 Peter 5, 8. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour. We, we don't, excuse me, the, on this hand, we don't want to underestimate him. He, he is like a roaring lion. He's prowling around. And I find it interesting, even as we sung, scripture compares Christ himself to a lion, also Satan, and to realize the deceit there of, of the way that he is masqueraded as an evil lion, and to realize we don't want to underestimate him. He truly is someone who's prowling around like a roaring lion. On the other hand, if you go to 1 John 4.4, 4, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let us not forget the truth and the reality of who Satan is and the truth and the reality of who God is, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. R.C. Sproul goes on to say, Satan is a creature. He is finite and limited. He is subordinate to God. Christianity never embraces an ultimate dualism of equal and opposite power. Satan is stronger than men, but no match for God. He has no divine attributes. His knowledge may exceed ours, but he is not omniscient. His strength may be greater than ours, but he is not omnipotent. He may have a wider sphere of influence than we, but he is not omnipresent. He, he's bound by space and time, as are all created beings. And so we would recognize and acknowledge that there are limits to his power. And though we must be on guard, we recognize that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. James says it this way. So when we think about our enemy and the reality of him, our battle is great. But brothers and sisters, let us remember, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the reality of who we are fighting in our enemy, that yes, the battle is great, but our commander is greater. Our response in light of the great, extreme, very real danger that Satan poses to us is submit ourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. This is the enemy that we face. Let's look at the commander that we have. The commander that we have, if, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to read these verses that I reference to the children in the children's message. And Paul is giving instructions to Timothy, and he says this, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 
So Paul tells Timothy that in, in his service for Christ, he's a soldier of Christ Jesus, that Christ Jesus is his commander, and therefore he's supposed to share in the suffering. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. For us as believers fighting in this spiritual war, for us as a church, for us as soldiers uh, in God's army, as it were, who is our commander? Where do our orders come from? Who is it that organizes the team? Well, it's Christ himself. We're soldiers of Christ, and our desire, our aim ought to be to please him. That as we go through our lives, we are not trying to think of, of ourselves and what will make today easy, what will please the people around me. Our sole aim ought to be to please our commander, Jesus Christ. Those verses came from 2 Timothy. When you think about the book of 1 Timothy, there are five times that Paul uses the word charge or command, and it carries with it the idea of... Um, handing down a military order which must be obeyed. And so Warren Wearsby, in commenting on that, he says this, in other words, the church or believer should receive God's commands from his word just the way an army receives orders from their commander. With respect, alertness, and the intention to obey. If men and women in the armed forces treated their orders with the same carelessness the average Christian treats God's word, they would probably be court-martialed. Harsh words, are they true? How, how is it that you relate to God's words and God's commands and God's instructions? If we're in a spiritual war and God is our commander, we must be receiving our instructions from him and through his word, and therefore let us be devoted to it. And another point of application along these lines would just be to think as you sit here and listen to this and you hear about the reality of the war between two kingdoms and the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, is Christ truly your commander? Have you come to the point in your life where you've realized your sin and your need to turn from sin and to place your faith and trust in Christ? I pray that that would be true of each one of you and that if there would be someone here who is looking at it and saying, I, I haven't yet decided to give my life to Christ, then brothers and sisters, you are fighting in the wrong kingdom. Whether you realize it or know it, your allegiances are to a commander that will serve you no benefit in your life. And if you realize your sin and your need of Christ, Scripture says that, that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That turning from our sin and believing in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, by, that that would be the only means of payment and salvation we could have. I, I pray that that would be true for you, that you would turn from your sin and cling to Christ in faith and realize that he truly should be the one leading your life. Well, if that's the enemy, if Christ is our commander, what are the resources that God has given us for this battle? And if you go to Ephesians chapter 6 and you look again at verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. L literally, uh, to be strong in the Lord, it's literally strengthen yourselves in the Lord. Christ is our commander, and where does our strength for the fight come from? It comes from the Lord himself, that we would strengthen ourselves in the Lord, that we would uh, see and understand that he's given us the resources that we need for the fight. 
A friend said it this way, being a part of God's army entitles you to all of heaven's resources. We have the power of God at our disposal. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That God in His infinite glory and wisdom has given us the resources that we need for the fight. And so you've you no doubt at other times in your Christian life have seen this passage. And when you look at verse 13, I want to read some of these verses. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I'm not going to take the time to go through these verse by verse, or to go through them phrase by phrase and to look at the pieces of the armor. That's a very profitable study, and I would encourage all of you to do it sometime. But as F.F. Bruce said, each piece of the armor is identified with some divine gift or virtue, and so you recognize and realize why, why, the Holy, why Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, draw, drew attention to these things that would be necessary in the life of the believer. But the point is that we need resources for the fight and God has given those to us and he helps us understand what they are. And the first thing that I want us to notice or be impacted by in understanding this is that if you're going to be prepared for the battle you're fighting, you've got to be prepared together. You've got to be fighting in the community. in the community of the church, in the brothers and sisters being together for the fight and the battle. I don't know about you, but often when I think about these passages, when I think about these verses and putting on the armor of God, it feels very personal. As if I wake up in the morning and I think about the day ahead and I think to myself, I better remember to put on my belt of truth. I better take my shield of faith. I better take with me the sword of the Spirit so that I can withstand these attacks. But one of the interesting things to note as you go through the passage, as you look at the verbs, as you look at the pronouns, they're in the plural form. This is not a singular battle for a singular attack so that you can be strong yourself. Paul is telling, hey, hey, you church, they're at Ephesus, all of you together, all of you on Team Jesus in Ephesus, all of you all put on all of your belts of truth. Everybody together pick up the shield of faith. And even as you think about what was it that made the Romans so great in their conquering, and over and over Scripture pulls from the, the imagery of war that they would have been so accustomed to, the Romans were not a great army because any one singular person was so great. Together as a group, they mastered almost to perfection the maneuvers of working together at war. They as a solidified unit together. The idea of one Roman soldier going on to take out the world would be nearly ridiculous. A friend said it this way, as believers we are called out of the world, called into a personal relation with God, but we are called together 
God does not intend for us to live our spiritual lives in a vacuum to ourselves, but in the context of community. This armor that Paul's handing down for the church at Ephesus and telling them, he's, he's reminding them, all of you together, this is what it's going to take to be the church. This is what it's going to take to fight together. And so it's an admonition to us that this war we're in, we need one another and we need the church because this is not a solo battle. And when you think about these verses in a Ephesians 6, you've got to be thinking together about the armor in this way. And then collectively we put on the armor. And then third, notice, notice the admonition to prayer, that we would be praying, that we would be praying for one another. And again, in a plural sense, the words here are speaking, all of you all, everyone there together at Ephesus, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I find it interesting that prayer in this corporate sense for one another is what Paul is saying is necessary for the battle there for the church at Ephesus. What would it be like if our prayers together as a church reflected the realities of verses 13 to 17? God, I pray for John. I pray that he'd put on the belt of truth. I pray for Jane, that she would pick up the shield of faith. That, that we would be thinking together and just realizing, you know what, we're, we're, we're at war. And, and though there are times that we need to and ought to pray for the physical trials we're going through in life, we ought to be also praying, but God, at the same time, I pray that you would protect them, help them to put on shoes that prepare them with the gospel of peace. That's what they need, God. Help them to remember the helmet of salvation and that we as a church together corporately would be praying for one another in this battle. Prayer is so vitally important, not just on a personal level, but in the corporate life of a church. Even some of the things that we try to do as a church in our service together, and as we try to pray through different aspects of the service, this hour and 15 minutes when we gather on Sunday morning, we have somebody this morning, Rob Finch came and started us in prayer. I want you to know and understand that we don't put these times of prayer into the service just because we need fillers and breaks to get the musicians up and on. Off, down off of the stage, right? It may feel that way at times. That's not what we're doing. We start the service in prayer and just saying, God, we, we want to meet with you. Please meet with us. Help us worship you in this next hour because if your spirit doesn't use your word in our hearts, this will be fruitless. And so we ask for his help. And then often before the offering, we'll pray. And here we'll think through some more of the needs of the church. And we'll, we'll pray for some of those physical things. But we'll also pray that God uses us as a church. Why? Because, because uh, he has told us that apart from him, we can do nothing. We realize that we need his help. And then this morning before the sermon, Kevin came up and he prayed for the word. Why? Because unless God works in our hearts for, for, the, for our hearts to soften and for the scales to fall off our eyes, we can't see and know and understand and hear and perceive the things of the Word as we need. And we need God to work in our hearts. There's nothing special that I'm going to say that's going to change your life. But if the Spirit of God chooses to use the Word of God, great things can happen. And that's what we're praying for. Spirit, please use your Word in our hearts. Thank you for leading us, brother, asking God to do these things. And when I'm done, we'll pray again. That's not so the musicians can come on stage. That's please, God, let these things happen. So be it. 
Please, Lord, accomplish these things in our lives. We want to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication because that's a part of the spiritual reality that we're in and we've got to recognize it and realize it. The resources have been given to us for this fight. Yes, the battle is great, but our commander is greater. The commander is great. He's given us the resources that we need. And then finally, notice the outcome. What is the outcome of the war that we are in? And what is the outcome of the spiritual battle that we partake of? And I want to think about this specifically from the church aspect. Big C, capital C. Church universal in what God is doing. In terms of an individual sense, yes, we are individually a part of a battle. Yes, individually we need to put on the spiritual armor. And, and, and yes, we realize, according to Jude, that he is able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before his glory with great joy. And so in an individual sense, yes, we realize that believers will persevere to the end, and we realize that believers need to have, um, we, we look and respond, and okay, the battle I'm in, by faith and obedience, I need to choose to do the right thing. Every single day, hundreds of times a day, by faith and obedience, responding the right way. What is the outcome for Shawnee Baptist Church in a little C? I don't know. Uh, we recognize and realize that throughout hundreds of, cent hundreds of years of church history that churches struggle to stay faithful. In, in an individual sense, we need to choose to respond in faith and obedience. In a corporate sense, Shawnee Baptist Church, little c, we better be faithful and obedient to God's word. Just as you go through the book of Revelation and you see some of those instructions to those churches and at least five of the seven churches, they had really gotten things wrong. They had started to shift in their focus. And so we realize that unless the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in our hearts, we, would, we, we will face an outcome that we don't want. And so we as an individual church must respond in faith and obedience to what is the commander instructing us to do. But I'm not thinking about this from an individual sense or from a little c Shawnee Baptist Church sense. I'm thinking about it from a big c, what is God's plan for his church? And this spiritual battle that we're in that we recognize and on the one hand is so discouraging to see the reality of evil and sin and the reminder that war and death is. And yet on the other hand, it is so inspiring to see a, a, a commander who has the resources necessary to inspire his troops for the battle at hand. And I want to take you back to the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus gives instructions to his disciples and he's telling us what will take place in his church and the outcome of the capital C church that he is going to build upon the promises of who he is as a person. So Matthew chapter 16 and starting in verse 13, and here's what Jesus says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's teaching his disciples, he's training them, he brings them into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he, he just kind of has this group class, study session, gather around, disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's asking about himself. What things have you heard about me? What are people saying about Jesus? Jesus. 
And, and, and he says, some, some, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. I mean, we're hearing a lot of different things about who the Son of Man is. And then Jesus brings it home. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? No longer is he asking, what's the word on the street? He's saying, who do you? What confession do you make about who I am? That's what Jesus is saying. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter nails it. Here's a confessor, Peter, making a true confession about who Jesus is. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah that we have been waiting for. You are the Christ. And Peter makes a true confession about who Jesus is. In verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's what Jesus tells Peter. Peter, you got it. And I know that only my Father has opened the eyes of your hearts to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a play on words going on here, and Jesus is, is helping Peter to understand that, that this confession that he has made of who Jesus is, this is the truth, the confession upon which Jesus would build his church. That is, Peter was the first to make the confession, and then others would come along and saying, yes, that's who I believe Jesus is. Jesus really is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. And on that bedrock truth, that foundation lays the truth of which Jesus Christ would build his church. That, so that as we come along, and in one sense, in the simplest form, who, who do you believe Jesus is? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, that's who I believe Jesus is. Two confessors making an identical confession. And we, yeah, that's who I believe Jesus is. That, that's my Jesus. Let's be on Team Jesus right here in this location, in this church, and let's unite together to fulfill the purpose of what a local church is. And Jesus says it's on that truth of who Jesus Christ is that he's going to build his church. And notice what he says. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What a beautiful truth. Now, you've got to think about the gates of hell. Gates are a defensive mechanism, right? The gates of hell keep in the powers of death. And, and what Jesus is signifying and saying is that he's going to build his truth on the church, uh, the build his church on the truth of who he himself is. And that church is going to be an offensive mission. And it's going to take the truth of who Jesus Christ is into the powers of darkness and proclaim those truths to a lost and dying world. And the very gates of hell would not stop that truth. Couldn't hold it back. The church will be able to flourish to proclaim the message and truth to the world that needs to hear it. And you got to catch and understand just how incredible this is. You and I are here today because of that band of misfits, right? The ones that were so scared after Jesus' death that they're hiding in an upper room, Peter denied Christ three times. And God did something with the truth of who he is to change their lives and hearts such that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And I want, to see, I want you to see why it's significant that Jesus, cho Jesus chose 
to give his disciples these instructions in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, we don't know for sure where Jesus gave his instructions. We don't know for sure what location. All we know is that he was in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was known for its pagan practices, for its, for its worship of false gods. I've got a picture that I want you to see, and this is in Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. Hear and know what I'm saying. I am not saying Jesus gave his speech at the base of this mountain. I don't know if he did or not. But it was in this region where uh, the city is located at the base of Mount Hermon. And there's this cave that you can go today and still see. And if you notice on the right-hand side of the picture, uh, right, right where it's highlighted, there's these niches that are carved into the rocks. If you zoom out, we'll see a picture where there would literally, there's, there's at least a dozen of these. You can see them etched into the stones there. And this place was well known for its pagan worship. It was well known for immorality and uh, all, of, all of the practices that goes along with the idolatry and the worship of the false gods here at Caesarea Philippi. And this river that you see coming out, it used to come out of the cave itself until an earthquake closed up that entrance. And so the water is here coming out of the cave. And to the pagan person in Jesus' day, to the pagan person, this area was famous for its worship of the god Pan and for its immorality that was associated with that worship. And they would come here and they would worship at the cave because they believed that these spirits and these gods descended into the underworld through this cave. This cave was a gate to the underworld. And they would come and worship in the springtime to see the water flow out of the cave and to see their fertility gods uh, worshipped and flourished and they would bring us life was their prayer. And in the winter time, the river would dry up and they would again come out to worship in the spring here at the gates of the underworld and they, this was what consumed the thoughts of the pagan mind that right here at the gates of hell in their mind, this is where they thought life was found. And so somewhere in the region of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus comes to the scene and he says, who do people say that I am? And Peter gets it. He confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not these false gods that go away in the wintertime. P- Peter is saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you nailed it. My Father has revealed this to you, and on this truth I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Brothers and sisters, the outcome of the battle is sure. And we realize that Jesus Christ and who He is and this message needs to be proclaimed to a lost and dying world. And He's put us together in a church. And he calls us the body. And he's the head of the body. And he's the commander of the body. He's the commander of the army. And he's working on us. He's shaping us. He's building his stones. He's preparing for himself a bride. And he's using us in his spiritual battle. And yes, the battle is great. But our commander is greater. Let's pray. Father, we come to you And we are humbled that you would choose to use us in your army, that you would choose to use us as a part of your battalion. Father, we need to look to you as the commander of us and this church. We thank you for the resources that you've given to us. Help us to use them together. 
to be in prayer about the battle we are in and to be in prayer for one another. And oh, Father, we thank you for the hope and the truth that you are building your church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. We thank you for that, Father. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts and lives and in us as a church to be confident in this battle that we're in. And yes, the battle is great, but may we keep our focus on you, the one who is greater. We ask and pray that you would do these things in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.